0: This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit FilmGeekRadio.com for more great shows.
1: Hey Gumshoes, welcome to episode number 14 of Detect This on Film Geek Radio. This is our podcast devoted exclusively to the HBO series True Detective. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined by my fellow detective, Charlie Nash.
0: Hey, Andrew. How you doing, Charlie? Uh, Andrew, I just had the strangest dream. A Conway Twitty impersonator was in a bar I was at, and he was singing The Rose by Bette Midler. And then uh, before I knew it, I woke up in a puddle of my own urine, and I had been shot by rubber bullets. No way! I had
1: the exact same dream. I had no idea you were a big Conway Twitty fan.
0: Oh my god, Andrew. <laughs> what are the odds?
1: <laughs> I have at least one Conway Twitty dream every week. Really? Yeah, I just I just love the guy so much. <laughs> I totally knew who he was when I saw him on True Detective. I did not think he was Elvis. Not at all. I think he was Elvis.
0: <laughs> Andrew. Why would you think such a ridiculous, silly thing?
1: Oh, as always, our listeners can email the show at detectthis at com or leave us a voicemail by calling 336-793-2509. Be sure to subscribe to Detect This on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you leave us a positive iTunes review, we will make you an honorary member of the Detect This team. We've got a few honorary members to induct this week before we really dive into things. Uh, we got an iTunes review from Who Who, who says, cool podcast. They're getting better and better at podcasting for this show. Thanks, I think, hoo-hoo.
0: I mean, it's better to go upward than downward, and yeah, thanks, man. Much appreciated.
1: (laughs) You know what? I've decided uh, that hoo-hoo is going to be our honorary dentist. Because, you know, after what happened to Danny Santos this week, we might need some dental work.
0: Yeah, I I agree. Some new grills. Maybe we could replace the fuck you with something, I don't know, even more vulgar. Or, you know, something that's positive,
1: like grateful for teeth. Or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, we got another review from Sarah Dems, who writes, Great commentary on True Detective. Love the analysis, and I think I would basically be completely confused about the season of True Detective without them. They work in humor well for talking about a dark show. Thanks, Sarah Dims. I think
0: that I would be confused, too, if I didn't watch each episode more than once. Same here. I had to watch this episode twice. I'm still probably, I still think I'm probably confused about some, a few things that we'll get into. I've also started just watching the episode with the captions on. I did the same thing. Well, I, I don't watch the episode with the captions on, but there were times I had to rewind it. And if I rewound it more than once and still couldn't hear what they were saying, I did have to turn the captions on. Yeah, it's actually a
1: big help for a lot of Nick Pizzolatto's writing if you could actually read what they're saying. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but thanks, Sarah Dims. I think we're gonna make you our honorary arsonist for when we
0: just need something to burn. <laughs> When we just have property that we need to destroy via fire. <laughs> yes, yes. And finally,
1: we got a review from N.T. Meso, who writes, The best podcast I have found in discussing True Detective, a well-thought and professional discussion of the characters, plot, and minutiae of each episode. I can't
0: wait for the next one. Aw, shucks. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you so much, everyone. Andrew, I feel so I feel so loved. Yeah, this is so wonderful. I could not be more grateful for all the support we've received over the past few weeks. Yeah,
1: and you know what? I I thought about it Charlie and I realized that Intimeso would make our perfect honorary pool cleaner because you never know when a topless woman's going to randomly fall into your swimming pool. <laughs> And you need to make sure that it's clean.
0: I mean, we already struggle so much with the leaves and, you know, uh, everything falling in. You know, like, topless women, Andrew, I mean, just, that crosses a line.
1: (laughs) All right, well, uh, let's dive into the show. Today we're going to be discussing Season 2, Episode 3 of True Detective. The episode is titled Maybe Tomorrow, and it was written by Nick Pizzolatto and directed by Janus Metz. As a reminder, this is not a spoiler-free podcast, so if you haven't seen the episode, you should go watch it and then come back and listen, because we will be getting into a lot of detail about what happened on this episode of the show. But before, we, but before we begin, Charlie, why don't you go ahead and remind us what happened
0: this week. Ray awakens to discover that he was shot with rubber pellets, like the kind that are used by riot police. Annie and Paul meet the mayor's wife, Veronica, and his Playboy son, who is a specialty event planner. Frank has trouble performing sexually and resorts to violence when one of his henchmen turns up dead. Ray and Annie visit a movie set and eventually wind up in a foot chase with a masked suspect.
1: All right, Charlie, overall, what did you think of this episode? It turns out we were right last week and they waste no time letting us know that Ray is indeed alive. Were you disappointed by that?
0: I was not disappointed that he was alive. I was disappointed by the way it was handled. And to be honest, that's how I felt about a lot of this episode, Andrew. I know I was a bit more positive last week with the second episode, but this episode really frustrated me. And by the time we had realized that he was alive, I felt like it was for nothing more than Nick Pizzolato basically pulling a big gotcha moment. And like, it was just meant for shock value. And it left a sour taste in my mouth that kind of lingered for the rest of the episode for me. And I know I'm going to sound so repetitive here, Andrew, but once again, so much exposition, so much going on, yet I feel like barely anything happens.
1: I agree with you in the sense that it seemed like not a lot happened this episode, Charlie. I did find it a little bit easier to follow than the first two episodes. And I think that the... uh, The big takeaway we're supposed to get from this episode is that there are these crazy sex parties going on.
0: So many sex parties. I mean, I know it's LA, but this is kind of insane.
1: (laughs) Right. But apparently Casper was involved uh, with these sex parties and the woman Tasha that he had been hanging out with uh, was involved in in them as well. And he used to go to these events with uh, the director of the film and it's possible that You know, the mayor's son may have helped organize this because he says that he's a specialty event planner who does all kinds of things. So uh, I think that these these sex parties might be the key to understanding what's really going on here.
0: Yeah, and they're so... (laughs) I mean, the sex details are just insane at this point, Andrew. I mean, by next week, I nearly expect them to be like, um, uh, Casper was also into incest. He fooled around with his sister uh, every couple of weeks. And uh, he also has a barn in upstate New York with award-winning, prestigious uh, farm animals that he occasionally has sex with as well. Like, it might as well go into incest and bestiality at this point. It's so insane. And I can't believe I'm going to use this pun, but the way they treated Ray's... Resurrection was such a cheap cop-out, like, the cheapest cop-out I've seen any show use at all this year. And not only is it illogical, it felt so slight. Like, it it ended with this big cliffhanger, like, as Pizzolatto was saying, shit, can you believe I just pulled that? And then he was just like, ah, just kidding. Ah, he's fine.
1: I can see where you're coming from, Charlie. I actually didn't mind it as much as i thought i was going to mind it just because they are so straightforward about it about you know just saying oh it was rubber pellets and sure yes you can argue it's manipulative to end the episode that way with him getting shot of course it's manipulative but tv shows do stuff like that
0: all the time well and i know that we brought this up before a show we're watching right now hannibal has done similar things where they make it seem like a character may be killed off and then they're not. But like Hannibal's so over the top and so self-aware of how over the top it is that it's not trying to be a gritty, this is the real world type of cop drama. It's much more of a surreal nightmare that you kind of uh, dive into every week. Whereas this Nick Pizzolatto, he expects us to believe this is like completely serious. And just from the way that it was handled, not to mention not even the marks looked like they were that bad on him. And I just have a couple ribs. It's fine. Like, really? And, like, even Rachel McAdams didn't care. Like, she was just kind of like, ugh, it smells like piss. Like, I'm gonna go check out the house. Like
1: I, I, I did kind of like that inside joke, though, where Ray wakes up, and the only thing he says is like, ugh, pissed myself. Kinda yeah. Because that's, that's pretty much what we all did last week
0: when that happened. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> here's the other thing I wanted to bring up. If this were, say, a show that came out on Netflix, like Orange is New Black or House of Cards, and they released... All the episodes is, you know, at once. How do you think last week's episode and the reaction we would have had to the beginning of this week's episode have played out? Because I feel like this was very much meant to be a cliffhanger because they knew it would be on a weekly basis. And it felt like Nick Pizzolatto didn't know how to end the episode last week now. So he's just like, oh, I know what will get everyone to flip out. If I show Colin Farrell getting shot, everyone will think he's dead. But it'll be fine in the next episode and you know what he'll he'll just have a few cracked ribs and then eh, so what he's he can still do his job like it just didn't feel sincere and uh, i know we're probably going to get some explanation as to why the man in the raven mask didn't kill him but why did would you leave him alive i i don't know it just it's it's a little hard to buy into for me
1: Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to to see what that explanation is. But overall, I was definitely more okay with how they explained it than I thought I was going to be. Especially because they gave us that weird little dream sequence at the beginning, which was kind of cool.
0: It was okay, but it was so David lynch light. It it was just, I could feel everyone behind it like, okay, this is going to be our Twin Peaks moment of the show. It's gonna be kooky. We're gonna have a guy. He'll be singing. He'll be a Conway Twitty impersonator. He'll be singing a Bette Midler song. It'll have hints of hues of Blue. It'll be like something out of Mahon Drive. It'll be great or Blue Velvet or Eraserhead. It's it's quirky. It's uh, and I was just like, it doesn't really feel like anything of substance. It just felt like Nick Pizzolatto kind of said, oh, I've come up with this crazy dream that he can go into in terms of like limbo between life and death, and I'll I'll have a Conway Twitty impersonator because why not? Well, I definitely think now that the
1: David Lynch vibes are intentional, because I don't know if you thought this, Charlie, but the actor who plays Ray's father, I, cu- I could not find his name. I tried to look it up.
0: Ray's father is played by Fred Ward, who was in Tremors. Okay, okay.
1: He looks a lot like David Lynch. He does, Yeah. And, I, and I'm just sitting there going, you know what? I wonder if this is intentional casting. I wonder if if is explicitly trying to acknowledge by casting this guy.
0: Yep, David Lynch. Yeah, but here's the thing, too, is that David Lynch has, like, a different outlook on its characters. David Lynch, you're occasionally laughing at what's going on in the characters and their situations. And while they're sincere, where their emotions are sincere, David Lynch is very much aware that you are someone who goes to watch a movie and it's... It, it's, he, he intentionally exceeds expectations as to what you think is going to happen next by throwing in images and dark humor and uh, shocking bursts of violence. Like, like Wild at Heart has, uh, opens with Nicolas Cage beating a man to death with his bare hands to the point where there's brains splattered all over the floor after he bashes his head in. And like, yet there's something so, yet the film is, so many different things at once and it's still so it's david lynch is such an idiosyncratic director that it's so uniquely his vision that he gets away with you know going back and forth between genres because he the characters are all playing it straight to have a gritty crime drama like this where there's barely any humor at all and everything is supposed to be realistic and then to just have this uh quirky fun little weird uh dream to start off the episode i'm just kind of like what are you doing here it, what, what, like, what is the point of this other than, hey, look what I can pull off just for fun?
1: I mean, it's not that much different from starting out last week's episode with that
0: monologue from Vince Vaughn. Oh, I completely disagree because I think that Vince Vaughn, that was character development as, as, you know, and it was like a close up of his face and it was played completely straight. And here it's like, what was the point? Apart from other than making a stylistic decision. And for the record, I'm okay with superficial stylistic decisions, but not when it comes out of the blue like this and feels like a completely different show.
1: I think it was meant to sort of give some insight into the relationship Ray has with his father.
0: I agree that the dialogue, yes, but the actual imagery of the guy, no. That was just supposed
1: to be surreal. You know, and and I'm I'm fine with that. It's it's like Ray's been shot in the chest. He's unconscious, and he's gonna go into this little dream world where he's gonna talk with his dad. And it it works for me. All right. Well, uh, before we move on, I have to ask you, Charlie. Did you have any favorite Pizza
0: Wattos? Oh this God! Episode
1: because I I wrote down a couple.
0: Oh, I yeah more than last week. Um. Okay. Okay. I want to go first. Yeah. Go first. Yeah. Yeah. You go first.
1: Okay, I've got two exchanges that I just had to write down. First one is from Frank's henchman.
0: I know which one this is. This is the one I was going to say.
1: <laughs> when they're talking about the Russian mobster, I think his name is Osip. Yep. <laughs> and this act, the actor playing this henchman, I can't decide if this is the worst performance I've ever seen on True Detective. <laughs> or the best performance I've ever seen on True Detective (laughs) because he was so awkward as he said this line it was almost like the actor was like what do you mean I have to say this? Yeah, I, uh, is, yeah. Is my character high? Yeah. I think I'm going to play this like I'm high. <laughs> yeah,
0: like, how many how many joints did you smoke while writing this scene, Pizzolato? Yeah, and he, I agree with you. He, had a react- he gave a delivery, like, I guess I'm just going to say this? I'm just going to pretend that my character knows what this phrase means? Sure. Frank asks him what he thinks
1: of, of Osip and whether he thinks Osip could have killed Casper, and he responds, He
0: looks... Half anaconda and half great white. What does that mean, Charlie? I threw my hands up in the air (laughs) and literally said, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I, I rarely speak out loud to my television while I'm watching a show, but I, I had a physical like, knee-jerk reaction to that line where I just thought, what's happening? Like, what? <laughs> I don't understand.
1: I, I, I wonder if Pizzolatto just sits around coming up with animal metaphors to describe his characters. I wonder if that was his pitch to HBO. We've got this character, Ray, and he's like a... He's like half-caged tiger, (laughs) half-parrot. And then we got Frank, you see? He's half-chimpanzee, which is why his last name is Simeon. (sighs) But he's also
0: half-gorilla because he's... Big and tough. What would Rachel McAdams be? Like, oh, she's a, a swan and an, a rhino or something. She, like. <laughs> she's, a,
1: she's a swan with a broken wing. Oh. She's crippled and she <laughs> can't spread her wings and fly. <laughs> and Paul, he's a chameleon trying to disguise himself, but he's really bad
0: at it. yeah. Oh. I know he's just he's so bad at being straight andrew i would know i've been there at one point in my life but uh uh... (laughs) the second bit of dialogue
1: i have to point out so frank meets with ray again in the bar and ray is really angry and he starts talking to frank and frank says there's a certain stridency at work here
0: i'm gonna put it off to you getting blasted oh frankly i'm apoplectic I'm feeling a little apoplectic myself.
1: (laughs) And all I could think was, as a high school English teacher, (laughs) if any of my students used the words stridency and apoplectic in in an exchange and made a pun on the word frankly... I would probably just immediately pass them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's almost like Nick Petzalato had a glossary of SAT words like that he used <laughs> in high school several years ago, and he was just like, man, I need I need some better adjectives to really spice up this dialogue. Oh, apoplectic, that's perfect. And I'm like, yes. I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone in a television show, a movie. I don't think I've heard had a conversation with a real human being in my life where they abuse the word apoplectic.
1: Right. I mean, and I'm like, Hey, congrats. That shows that you're well read and you're an intelligent person. Bravo. Yeah. You know, and, and, look, we make fun of this, Charlie. I don't dislike it because I, I do think that Pizzolato is trying to craft this interesting blend between realism and kind of cartoonish pulp. And some of the dialogue, I think, definitely tends to uh, fall on the side of the ladder. But a few of these lines I just thought were, you know, being pushed a little bit too far. Yeah, well, it's,
0: it's again, the dialogue is either murky exposition or exposition so blunt, you can practically feel yourself bleeding from a head wound. It's being hammered into your face so hard. And that's the thing where I agree that he's trying to make it sort of pulpy, but at the same time, I feel like Pulp doesn't take itself this seriously or aim for the dramatic highs that it's aiming for when it gets dramatic. I, I feel like the first season embraced its silliness in a way that was much better. Or McConaughey and Harrelson had a much better uh, time reveling in it that, and making it accessible to us. Because I don't even think Vince Vaughn knows what the word apoplectic means. Or I, I'm sure Vince Vaughn read the script and was like, apoplectic? He's like, what the fuck does that mean? And had to go look it up because I'm not going to lie, Andrew. I'm not going to pretend to be smart. I had to go look up what it meant. And, and I'm a writer. I'm a writer. You're a writer. But as we said, when the fuck does that word ever get used in everyday sentences? Well, look, it just means that you're really angry. You're in a rage. Not to mention there's a lot of other words for angry, such as uh, furious or uh, peeved or, like, take your pick. Or I'm
1: going to butt- Fuck your mother's <laughs> headless corpse in front of your father on this goddamn lawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are other ways you can put it. You're <laughs> right, Charlie. And I think Ray Ray has a lot of different ways to communicate the fact that
0: he's angry. Yeah. Can I tell you one of my favorite uh, pizza lattos? Which uh, I I don't know what this means either. They're treating you all right? like a cheerleader on an oil rig. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what? 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 Cheerleader on an oil rig? Like. I get that you're polar opposites, you know, putting them together for sarcasm, but, like, I don't know. I guess that means that
1: on an oil rig, a cheerleader would be treated really well, because all of the guys would be so happy to have a woman around. Is that the
0: implication? I immediately got an image of, like, Daniel Plainview from There Will Be Blood with the oil drilling, and then, like, imagine cheerleaders just, like.
1: (laughs) See, my first thought is Liv Tyler in Armageddon, because they're all oil drillers, and she's, like, isn't the opening of that movie, like, she snuck around all the guys and she's sleeping with Ben Affleck.
0: Yeah, yeah. Bruce Willis catches Ben Affleck with Liv Tyler and tries to shoot him with a shotgun and it's just Liv Tyler going, Daddy, this is not funny. It's so awful. Here's my question. Was
1: Liv Tyler in that movie a cheerleader? Because if so, Nick Pizzolato may have just directly
0: referenced Armageddon. Oh God. I mean it she was a she had all of the uh personality her character had all the depth of an airheaded cheerleader in most movies and T V shows because she basically existed there to look pretty and so Ben Affleck could stick animal crackers down her underwear while uh I Don't Wanna Miss a Thing, which is sung by her father, is playing in the background, which is one of the most disgustingly creepy things <laughs> I've ever seen on film. I had forgotten all about that.
1: Now you make me want to rewatch Armageddon.
0: <laughs> oh, Andrew, don't. You'll have a migraine for weeks.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, were there any other pizzawattos that you found?
0: Um, This isn't so much a pizzuato so much as is that an attempt at humor, which is Taylor Kitsch looks over at Rachel McAdams and goes, is that a fucking e-cigarette? And all I could think of was, is that a fucking joke?
1: I actually kind of like that because... Because now this is the second time that someone has commented on her e-cigarette. And I wonder if that's just going to be a recurring thing throughout the series. Like, man, I can't believe this woman is smoking an e-cigarette.
0: But what does that tell us about her character? What would make a difference about it? You know, okay, so she smokes an e-cigarette. What is the difference between her smoking an e-cigarette and regular cigarettes? She's still smoking. It doesn't really say anything about her. Other than she's, you know, she's different than the other cops. Because she's a woman and she's tough. And she's tougher than most women these days. And the the way that they're depicted on screen and media. And she has an e-cigarette, which means she's hip. Like, ugh.
1: But it's healthier, Charlie. Because she needs to be in good shape for when she has to use those knives.
0: <laughs> I guess so, but you're still smoking, Andrew. <laughs> I mean, like, if she had an e-cigarette that was, or an e-cigarette or vaporizer, I guess, with weed, that would be one thing. But she's still smoking, like, I don't care. Like, how much healthier is an e-cigarette compared to a real cigarette? I'm sure we're going to get a lot of comments that were like, you idiot, it's so much healthier. But it's like Nick Pizzolato's trying to be hip and he's just kind of like, oh, instead of actual cigarettes, she'll smoke an e-cigarette. And that'll make her distinctive. And I'm just like, that doesn't do anything. Like, she's still smoking. I I don't know. All right. Well, speaking of
1: Paul, let's let's (laughs) segue into his storyline this episode, because uh, we did have some interesting scenes with him. Okay, first of all, he and Annie go to the mayor's house.
0: Yeah, with the Russian mail-order bride, or basically, it seemed like that, who smokes weed right in front of them as soon as she lets him into their house. But she has she has eye problems, Charlotte. Oh, that makes all the difference then. Yeah, and she also had that ridiculous Russian accent that was like, who are you? Like, I don't know, that was terrible, but like, part of me almost wanted to start the show with that accent, Andrew, because <laughs> it was just so... I mean, maybe I shouldn't make fun of it. Do you think that actress was Russian? I don't know. I, I don't know. I was trying to
1: figure out, though, Charlie, what is the point of this scene? And the way I I figure it, it seems like there are only two really important things that we get from, from this scene. We We get that the mayor has a daughter who's apparently kind of traumatized and doesn't really want to see anybody. And we get that his son, who we had heard... In the previous episode, at one point had a serious coke problem. Apparently he does specialty events and and
0: organizes them. Whatever that means.
1: Well, I think it's clear that he's probably involved in whatever strange sex party events that, you know, are, are going on around town.
0: I mean, I figured, but that's just so vague that I was kind of like, wouldn't you want to get a little more info on that, guys? Like, if, I, if someone just said, I do special event parties when I was interviewing them, or when I was, like, questioning them, I would be like, you need to be more specific than that, brother. Like,
1: <laughs> I, I also found it interesting that he he uses all these different accents, and it seems like he, he's used to playing these different characters, and I think it's it's kind of intriguing that this is, there's this recurring theme running throughout this season of this idea of masks and disguises and who people think you are versus who you really are and trying to hide your true self. And that seems to be uh, one of the main themes running through this season that wasn't explored quite as much last season.
0: Yeah. And uh he calls Rachel McAdams a racist uh, for asking about the accents. And if there's another thing I got from that scene, it's that Taylor Kitsch is much more respected because he's a man and Rachel McAdams gets the shaft a lot of the time because she's a woman and uh, people think they can just walk all over her based on her gender. Because the woman who is topless, who falls into the pool from the roof and seems to be totally fine about that, despite the fact that the guy pushes her from the roof of the house or balcony to the pool and... And he says, stay down, bitch, or something generic and sexist like that. And then she's just like, oh, you like she's just does not care. And then eyes Taylor Kitsch like you're cute. And he's just kind of like, no, thanks. And then uh, Rachel McAdams gets the door shut on her by someone else in the house. He walks all over her claiming that she, you know, I don't know if he was being serious or just trying to humiliate her by saying that she was being racist based on the accent. But it's clear that she is not well-regarded based on her gender in this occupation. Another thing about that, too, the word cunt was used about four or five times. Like, I mean, not literally four or five times, maybe three times tops. But it's a word that, you know, Andrew, I'm not going to lie, based on previous podcasts in the past, I tend to use vulgar language, but I rarely ever, ever, ever use that word. And it's still the one of the few words in the English language that kind of shocks me or kind of puts me on edge. And the amount of times Rachel McAdams gets called a cunt in this episode was shocking in terms of like, uh, I don't know. It was just really, I, it was like we get it, Pitslotto. the These characters hate women. Well, I think it's kind of
1: important because as you pointed out, the mayor's son is acting this way towards her. And seems really condescending. And the mayor himself is the guy who calls her a cunt. So yep. it seems like the Chisanis are pretty misogynistic family, and that's just more evidence to think that they're probably involved with these sex parties and whatever strange stuff is going on involving women
0: here. Yeah. Also, one quick detail, real uh, before um we move out of this scene, there were so many pictures of the mayor <laughs> in his own home. Yes. I don't think I saw a photo that was that didn't include him in it. And is it just me or did I see one with him and George W. Bush? Oh, you did. That's how you know
1: that the Chassanis are bad people. Okay, because they got a picture with George W. Bush, and they're in
0: California.
1: <laughs> they're in California. <laughs> and they support George Bush. Okay, yeah. that's that's how you know something fishy's going on. <laughs> yeah. I've never met one
0: person from California who liked George Bush. Andrew. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only people who do are corrupt, apparently.
0: <laughs> so, moving on.
1: Paul meets an old war buddy named Miguel, played by uh, Gabriel Luna. And I thought that this scene was really interesting because I interpreted it multiple ways both times I saw it. The first time I saw it, they they're talking about the support group that they're in. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed, "Oh, they're talking about a support group for veterans about some some, you know, that some horrible things must have happened to them while they were overseas and, you know, they were they're traumatized." However, the second time I watched it, I realized that immediately after that scene, they're walking around outside and they're talking about how they kind of miss it overseas. How how that was like a positive experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if maybe in that first bit, when they're talking about the support group, are they talking about maybe victims of sexual abuse? Mm -hmm. Because Paul, we think, might have been molested by his mother, perhaps. Maybe it's that kind of support group.
0: I don't know. What do you think? I think it's all do you miss it as in they are using that code and twisting their words to Gabriel Luna. I feel like he was kind of using cover-up words to really hint at the fact that he's like, hey, we had a thing going. I really miss it. I'm not really talking about the war.
1: Well, that's what he starts to talk about when they're outside,
0: Mm -hmm. but when they're inside, and they're just talking about, like, hey, have you
1: been going to the meetings and that kind of thing? I was trying to figure out, well, what kind of meetings are you talking about?
0: That That is true. And and I will give you this. As much as I've complained about Paul in terms of not being a nearly interesting enough character, this week I think he had the best scenes of the show. And i now looking back on some of the scenes in the first episode— And second episode, I was like thinking, okay, if Nick Pizzolatto cleared up that he was gay without trying to hide it in vague self-pitying and scenes of brooding, I would have found this character much more interesting because I assumed it was much more of like, he was like some... I don't know, misfit from like the show Entourage who was just really depressed and filled with bro problems and now have a completely different perspective on his character. It is very heavy handed. I mean, the dialogue isn't subtle, but the performances in that scene between the two actors I thought were pretty good. And I think Taylor Kitsch is selling it well. I was, I know I've been harsh on him over the past few weeks, but I just wish Pizzolato just get it out in the open in the first episode. He's gay. He's well, closeted. I don't
1: know if it's necessarily that simple, Charlie, and I think that there are still a few gaps that need to be filled in. For example, I think it's still possible that Paul was abused when he was younger, and then while he was overseas, maybe he revealed that to Miguel, and they... they found this thing in common that they had together and maybe that's what drew them together and, and helped them form this quasi romantic bond. And so maybe that's why Paul is in denial about this whole thing because maybe his his homosexual feelings are kind of related to this acknowledgement of the fact that he was abused. I mean That is true. I mean the, Miguel basically tells him you know, in the the beginning of the scene, like, you know, you have to be honest about what happened. You have to be open about your past and just make it a part of you and move on. So clearly something happened to Paul and mm-hmm. we don't know if it was just something that happened while he was overseas or if it's something that goes back to his childhood. But I would I would bet money that it's something to do with his childhood.
0: Yeah, it, it's funny, too, how many articles I've Read and, uh, about re- recapping the episodes. I read three articles that made Burke Back Mountain jokes about his character oh, right. <laughs> Like, uh, Luna is the jack to his Ennis or whatever. And like, uh, yeah, we get it. Burke Back Mountain's a gay movie and it's big, but like, <laughs> I was amazed. I was like, you know, there's more than one gay movie, guys. But anyway, uh, you know what? I would love, Andrew. I would love it if A, Taylor Kitch's character gets his own spin off. And then that just turns into the third season of looking. Or if the twist at the end of the season is everyone on True Detective this season is gay because they're all having sexual (laughs) frustration. (laughs) How amazing would that be if like, oh, Colin Farrell is actually gay and that's why he's not hooking up with women and Vince Vaughn is like, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I
1: I, yeah, I
0: I think I've realized that actually I'm bisexual. (laughs) I think that there was a lot of bro swagger and dude language like wasn't the scene basically like dude chill and then like maybe I don't want to chill maybe I want to remember it and then <laughs> oh, fuck you you asshole and I get that don't get me wrong I know that there are a lot of people who do talk like that who put on a heterosexual facade Based on those feelings. As someone who, I, I mean, I didn't come out until I was in college, so I understand his character's conflict because I remember thinking, oh, I have to be, I have to say stuff that makes me look straight. But, like, it still is very much uh, Nick Pizzolato's tough, brooding, macho language in terms of, like, the dialogue that he writes for this character.
1: <laughs> I just want to say, Charlie, that I would totally watch a reboot of In Treatment where that is how the therapist and his patients talk to each other. (laughs) (laughs) You just really need
0: to open up.
1: No, man, fuck you. No, fuck
0: you. Mia Wasikowska comes in and is like, dude, it's no problem. I just, I swerved in front of the truck, man. I didn't try to kill myself. Chill out, bro. Oh, man. All right. Yeah, and then uh, Gabriel Burns like, Sophie. Bro, you need to chill the fuck out, man. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, it's basically it's chill, it's, chill. It's Basically, just entourage mixed with in-treatment. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> okay. So, well, speaking of all these sexual hang-ups, let's talk about Frank, because he's having some issues this week. And he had mentioned in the pilot episode that he and his wife are trying to get pregnant, and they're trying this whole in-vitro fertilization thing. Well, he he's having trouble performing this episode. What did you think of that whole scene?
0: And it, it's weird that I mentioned that Kelly Riley reminded me of Amy Adams and the master uh, a couple episodes ago, because I got hints of the horrifying handjob scene that Amy Adams uh, is with. It uh, gives Philip Seymour Hoffman in the master with this scene. Although this time uh, I just found it to be kind of like, okay, Vince Vaughn has sex problems too. <laughs> And and Kelly Riley instead of being kind of menacing and uh, in the way that Amy Adams' character was in that film was like you know basically giving him a blowjob and understandably getting frustrated because Vince Vaughn's getting a blowjob and then having a temper tantrum like a three year old.
1: Well, I found it interesting that he basically blames her, and he just is kind of like, "Hey, I'm I'm fine, you know. The doctor says my sperm's good;
0: they're moving around." Yeah, and this is another problem that I have, though. We don't know anything about Kelly Riley, and Kelly Riley is a terrific actress. I mean, she was able to make suicide a part of her character in the movie Calvary last year, and man, and her character managed to crack jokes about it in a way that still felt true without eliminating any of the pain that she's going through. And here, it's just like she's resorting to, she's being forced to resort to being the wife on who's just patting her husband on the back and, I don't know, giving him blowjobs and staying up late to have sex with him, I'm like, guys, like maybe she'll come in later, but so far I'm just so uh, disappointed with how underwritten her character is. And it's all about Vince Vaughn's, I have guy problems, you wouldn't understand, you're my wife, you're a woman type of vibe I got from that scene,
1: you know? Well, we'll talk more about Kelly Riley when we get to the feedback, because we got an interesting email about her. Okay. But uh, after this scene with Frank, um, he basically starts to get pretty manipulative and violent. He goes to this uh, construction site and convinces the foreman to pay him, I think it's 25% of whatever money that he makes. And then he gathers all of his old uh, criminal buddies together and he decides to uh,
0: beat up Danny Santos. Yeah, and uh, remove his grill with pliers, which thankfully happens off screen. I mean, I can watch graphic violence, but teeth pulling I get really squeamish about for whatever reason.
1: (laughs) Well, I did find it interesting that Santos was so basically like in his face and just kind of like, no, we're not going to help you out. Because it's not like Frank was asking for money.
0: And it's not, you know, it's all... No, that whole scene was so awkward. Everyone pulls a gun on him, too. I was like, what's happening? Like, I don't understand how it's built up to this point. Yeah, all he
1: was (laughs) doing, he was like, hey, can you guys help me uh, find out what's going on with this Casper guy and and who killed him? And they're like,
0: no, that's your business. And I'm Well, to be fair, I don't think... Vince Vaughn was far from humble. Vince Vaughn automatically assumed that it was them. Almost, it almost seemed from like a racial stereotype thing because they say, "Hey, the Mexicans found them. It's probably them. They're Mexican." Like type of vibe that I got from it. And then not only that, but Santos. This is a character who has "fuck you" it grilled into his teeth, and he's he's like, "Oh, oh, you want to fight? You want to fight? Fuck you, man! I'll fight you. Fuck you!" And then like Vince Vaughn. I think, gets punched once. <laughs> like, like Vince Vaughn is beating the shit out of this guy. And he barely gets a punch in. And it was just so... Like, I know he's heavier than Vince Vaughn, but I was still thinking, like, he, uh, what, Vince Vaughn can't take a punch in the face or something? Like, I doubt that his... I know that he's supposed to be tough and... Whatever, but you know, I expect a guy with such a vulgar phrase on his teeth would be a bit better of a fighter, especially when he has a gang and they all have guns, including shotguns. I'm pretty sure that they it, it was just so weird, Andrew.
1: I just found myself thinking, look, I know that Frank was being kind of arrogant and being kind of condescending, but mm-hmm. if he asked for a favor. I always thought that the way criminals work is it's like, yeah, I'll do you this favor and then you're going to have to do this other crazy favor for me down the road. And that's how it works. You, you, you know, the worst thing you could ever have to do is owe somebody something. But, uh, mm-hmm. apparently that's not what Santos wants. He doesn't want to have Frank in his debt for whatever reason. He would rather just punch him in the face or try to at
0: least. Can we also agree that Frank is by far the most boring character on this show? Because my main problem with this season so far is I could really care less or about some of these people or, or, their, or their problems at the very least. You know, even if the Annie's detective story is a bit generic and bland, I still like Rachel McAdams and her character so different compared to anything on the show so far that I'm still interested in her. And like Frank, whenever a scene with Frank comes on, I kind of just sigh and go, Ugh, like, I just don't find him interesting at all. He's just... You know, another mobster who lost a ton of money and has to find a way to save his own ass and it's not done with any sort of flair or apart from some jarring pizzolatos, it's just played completely straight. As if it's any other mob movie. And it's nothing against Vince Vaughn. I know a lot of people are saying he's flat. I don't mind his performance. It's just the the, the plot. Not to mention, his plot continues to get more convoluted. I disagree. I, I
1: think that Frank is a fairly interesting character. I think this week, Frank's storyline felt like it was the weakest. Because it really wasn't doing anything outside of what we had already seen last week. I mean, last week... Frank realized what was going on with the money and decided to get violent in order to get what he wants. And this episode, he's pretty much just doing the same thing. He's continuing to be violent in order to get what he wants. So yeah. there wasn't um, any major development with him.
0: Also bad storytelling from like his plotline. I think is the worst written in terms of you have to keep up with the most convoluted stuff his 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 plot line is the most convoluted by far but like last week I complained about the scene with the two guys rear-ending the guy's car and then pepper spraying him and I had no idea what was going on this week someone taps Vince Vaughn on the shoulder and says hey Stan is dead and I thought who Who, who, who's Stan and I'm not gonna lie Andrew I'm not gonna pretend that I figured this out. I had to look up online who Stan was, and he was one of the pepper sprayers. And for whatever reason, I just feel like Nick Pizzolato is not clear enough with defining who all these people that he's associated with are. I, I see. I don't even think that's important, though. But but they're trying so hard to make it easy to... I am mean, not sure they're trying to make it easy to follow, but they're tr- clearly trying to make it, you know, coherent,
1: and... Look, all you need to know is that Stan was a henchman, and as soon as they said, oh, Stan's dead, I just figured, oh, it's someone that works for them.
0: But clearly, Vince Vaughn cared a lot about Stan, because he had the, who the fuck would do this to Stan? Who would do this? And I'm just like, I don't know, we don't know Stan. We haven't seen him at all, apart from, like, one scene where he beat the crap out of somebody we also don't know
1: so stan has his eyes burned out just like casper did mm-hmm. and it gets to this whole idea of who was the guy in the bird mask why did he or she not kill ray and what's their what's their whole goal and i think it's possible charlie that maybe the person in the bird mask What if this is not someone who's involved in the crazy sex ring or the uh, the, the possible snuff films that were being taped at Casper's house? What if this is someone who was abused and now is out for revenge?
0: That is far more interesting than anything I could think of because while watching this episode, I kept thinking... I don't know who a possible suspect could be other than the therapist we were talking about this week, last week, because of that clue, nor do I know anything about these people. And to be honest, Andrew, nothing is more frustrating in a noir type story for me than to hyper focus on four characters and have, at this point, three hours of footage where it's exposition on top of exposition on top of exposition with like a few inciting events that cause for brief spurts of action. And... Than to pull a bunch of side characters off from the side and say, well, it's actually this person who did this, even though we spent no time developing who they were as a person, or even, you know, we just mildly referred to them through uh, chit-chat. It's, it, it you know, if you're going to have a noir, because Chinatown, as we keep bringing up, tons of characters... So many characters, and yet the dialogue between those characters—you get a sense as to who these people are, and you're already invested in the mystery because it's so well—it's so detailed, and while being a bit convoluted, you're going through Jack Nicholson's shoes, so you're going with his through his perspective, solving the case. So your views on the character are reflective of his views of the certain character. Here, people come in, characters come in and out, out of nowhere. Sometimes I don't know if I've seen them before. Sometimes I don't know if they've been in the show the whole time. I don't know if, like, I don't know any of their names. And maybe this is just me not being the best viewer, but I, or just being dumb. But I have a hard time keeping up with, if you asked me if I knew who the killer was, I would say, I have no idea nor do I have any evidence apart from the four main players of the show to accurately state what kind of clues I would be able to thrive from their appearances on the show. Because each character comes in and out whenever they're needed. They're not so much characters to me so much as they are devices for exposition. Well honestly, I don't know what you
1: expected, because it's like what it's like we said back when we did either when we were talking about the first episode or before that when we did our introductory episode. And we were talking about how, you know, by the nature of this genre, whenever you get into a big corruption noir plot, it's gonna be more plot-driven, there's going to be more exposition to follow, it's not going to be as character-focused, and it's going to be complicated. And, oh, yeah! And, I again, I find some of these same things irritating as well, Charlie, but I mm-hmm. also think that those just kind of come with this kind of story.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, and I know that, again, not fair, two different mediums, film and TV, are not the same thing, but the villain's at the end of L.A. Confidential. And the villains at the end of Chinatown, the footage we've seen of them before they're revealed to be the big bad define them in a way that supports our, like, oh, of course they're behind everything theory. You know what I mean? And here, it's just they're, they're just come in whenever they're needed. They're like stock characters that are just like, oh, we'll throw somebody off this way Well,
1: right but at the same time charlie yes i remember who the bad guy is at the end of confidential but could i tell you how they got to that realization and what all the different puzzle pieces were that led them to that no i don't remember that at all and i've seen that movie multiple times and i think that that's just the nature of the genre i think it's very very possible that by the end of this season of true detective it'll be like oh yeah of course that's the situation but then are we going to be able to recall all of the complicated mess of clues that it took to get
0: there? No. But L.A. Confidential is a two-and-a-half-hour movie. True Detective Season 2 has now exceeded this, and I know I know, it's not fair. But here, I don't know. I keep forgetting who's connected. Especially with Frank's storyline, side characters come in and out, and I don't know any of their names. I don't know what their personalities are. I just know they work for Frank. And... You know, that's fine. You know, like, uh, True Detective last season had characters coming in and out of nowhere, but it was much more distinctive or the writing was better. I don't know. It's just, I, I, there's no hook for me to keep, there's no gears. Gears feel like they're kind of stilted. They're not, I'm at a loss in terms of what I have to be interested in apart from, uh, or, uh, like, I, I have no motivational drive to, be invested in this mystery. To be honest, I don't like many of these people. I know I'm being critical here, Andrew. It's just three episodes in. I know it's still the beginning, but that's three hours of my time. And most noir stories, as convoluted as they are, can be told beautifully in less than this runtime. And I I hope I'm not being too harsh, but that's just the way I feel right now.
1: Well, here's my theory, Charlie. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say that the person in the bird mask is... Tasha.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, here's the thing. Tasha, a character we have been hearing about yet we've never met, right? Well, we know that
1: Tasha was uh, an escort who was involved with Casper. We know that she and he went to these these parties where there may have been a lot of sex going on. I think it's possible that something happened at one of these parties and Tasha was just kind of like You know what? I've had it and I'm out for revenge. Now, I don't know how Tasha is connected to Frank unless she's connected to Frank because he used to own that club, Lux Infinitum, where a lot of the escorts that Casper liked to pick up, you know, that's where they were. So maybe that's how she knows about Frank and why she would go about and why she would go after his henchmen. I don't know. But for right now, my theory is person in the bird mask is Tasha.
0: I can, I can go with that. My first thought was, why is that guy who meets up with Vince Vaughn towards the end of the episode, say, hesitate and say, oh, my phone died. And he goes, am I a teenage girl? Like, that was like, okay, that's suspicious, but that could also be a red herring. I'm still going with the therapist. I mean, we didn't see him this week. But that's what I'm going with. Also, speaking of things we didn't spend time on this week, apparently Annie's not looking for that girl anymore, or uh, just did not care to look for her this week? No, her partner is. While she's doing this, I think her her
1: partner back at the station is mainly working on that.
0: All right. Also, one other thing we forgot to bring up. Casper has, like, blue uh, jewels or something in a safety deposit box. Why couldn't we have gotten that before? Because to bring it up now on top of everything else, it's like juggling a bunch of things all at once. And it's kind of making my head spin with all these names and locations. And this is a genre where I feel like there's so much to keep up with, yet so little personality. It's just, I guess that's what it is, Andrew, is that we're passing... In between directors, we didn't even really talk about the fact that Justin Lin isn't really directing this episode, but for all I knew, they could have might as well have been him because here, during the chase scene in particular, it wasn't badly filmed, but it really made me miss how Fugunaga was able to do that amazing one track. And I know that's sort of unfair. Not everything's going to be done in one take. It's not all gimmick. But, you know, that one shot, uh that one extended shot through the raid made me, it was electrifying and to just have a sort of bland chase scene after a car gets set on fire where it's just cutting and then Rachel McAdams is just yelling typical cop phrases like, stop, motherfucker! Like, it just, I, uh, I it, it just feels like, it feels so familiar to me. Firstly, I think the
1: diamonds, my prediction with the diamonds is that they're somehow connected to the land. Yeah, okay, i buy that. I think the only options we have is that either those diamonds were given to Casper by an important female companion or that they're somehow related to this big land deal going on because of the railway and catalyst. And maybe there's secretly some like diamond deposits on this land or something. I don't know.
0: Sure. I
1: guess. (laughs) I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine, Andrew. And in regards to the direction I could tell immediately that this was not directed by Justin Lin as soon as we started out with that crazy dream sequence.
0: Okay, that, yes. Anything apart from that, though, I will give you that dream sequence. It was very un-Justin Lin, that dream sequence, but that was, again, the only, it was, it's just shot like, and there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, you know, my favorite TV shows switch directors and writers all the time. But it's not like I'm watching Breaking Bad, going, "Oh, if it isn't directed by Ryan Johnson, I'm not interested." But at the same time, to have to go from one season where it was all Kerry Fukunaga's vision with Nick Pizzolatto's writing to somewhat more tame, not nearly as stylized, more just kind of straightforward uh, visual approach to storytelling, it did it, it did make me yearn for Fukunaga's touch.
1: Well, you mentioned that you had an issue with the the chase sequence. It didn't bother me that much. I do think that Justin Lin probably would have directed that foot chase in a much different way. Janus Metz, his background is mainly in documentary. I think you could definitely tell, especially in that chase sequence, that he's a guy that's comfortable getting down on the ground using handheld shaky cam. And that chasing to me... Definitely felt more in the vein of a documentary, I guess, than in like a really intricately choreographed
0: chase scene like you would normally see in a narrative film. Yeah, and it wouldn't have bothered me as much had season one been so uh, exuberantly uh, full of filmmaking energy in terms of the technical qualities of, you know what I mean? Like, if it would not have bothered me had we not seen chase sequences done by Fugunaga
1: well, right. And again, just to play devil's advocate, I think that it's possible Pizzolato really doesn't want that kind of visual flair this season just because he wants this season to be focused more on the story and the plot and the writing and this kind of gritty, dour, murky kind of atmosphere that more spectacular cinematography might distract from.
0: I I agree with that, and um, I know we're kind of jumping all over the place here, and I'm sorry that we're kind of doing it out of chronological order for this episode, but can we, speaking of Carrie Fukunaga, go to the scene at the movie set?
1: Yes, I was actually just going to bring that up. So they go to the movie set, and the director here is kind of a jerk, and definitely looks like Carrie Fukunaga. And I really felt like Pizzolatto was taking a jab there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say I don't, know, I don't want to say he looked like Cary Fukunaga, but he was Asian, which Cary Fukunaga is Asian. So, well, like, also, and he had his
1: hair back in a in a little, yeah. little bun, and I kind of I feel like I've seen interviews with Fukunaga where he had his hair like that, and I don't know. I just was sitting there going, "Wow, Nick Pizzolatto, you really
0: know how to hold a grudge." Yeah, but like that's another thing that bothered me is I'm kind of like, don't shit all over what made the first season great. Like, like, and not to mention the first thing we hear out of his mouth is "cut." Ah, fuck it, check the gate. And I'm just like, I doubt that Nick. I doubt that Kerry Fuganaga directed like that.
1: Well, look, even if it, even if it was, and look, there have been reports that Fuganaga and Pizzolatto did not get along during mm-hmm. during season one of True Detective and there was some tension on set. Even so, I believe Fukunaga is still an executive producer for season two. Yeah, that's a good point. You, you don't you don't throw him under the bus like that. You don't, yeah. you don't you keep all that stuff behind the scenes.
0: Okay? You don't
1: air your dirty laundry in public.
0: Part of me went through something watched this week's episode and then he got to that scene and he's like, wait, hold on. What? <laughs> I'm sure he knew about it, but hey, he's, he's getting paid for it, so. Yeah, um, that's the other thing. That car that was set on fire that was rented from the, the set, that was the car that Casper was in, right? Because even Rachel McAdams says at one point, is that the same car when it's set on fire?
1: You know, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, I figured it was the car stolen from the set, but I guess you're right that the car stolen from the set could be the car that was used to transport the body. That's what I thought. I mean, it's just a guess, but... Because the car wasn't left at the crime scene, was it?
0: No, it wasn't.
1: Okay, okay. So so, so I'm glad you brought this up, Charlie. So this means that, assuming the guy that they were questioning wasn't involved, this means that somebody took the car from the set, transported the body, and then took the car back to that guy's apartment just to kind of,
0: like, set him up. That's what I assumed, it's a pretty big coincidence that they happen to the cops happened to stop by that kid's house the very same moment they decide hey we'll set him up with the car
1: well you know what this just reinforces my theory that the person in the bird mask is Tasha I think Tasha <laughs> went to one of these parties with Casper and the director of the movie was there and somehow she heard about the uh, the guy who had gotten sick and quit the movie or whatever and mm-hmm. something happened and she decided to get revenge kill casper and leave the
0: car outside this guy's place yeah Do, does that annoy you though it, okay let's say let's say you're right the killer's tasha would that annoy you that we are being told about this character instead of being shown who she is not yet
1: no not it, yet? no
0: it, it, it okay it, it did
1: annoy me a little bit that uh taylor kitch pays money in the club to get information and to hear that it's this girl, Tasha. And I was like, wait, 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 why don't you talk to Ray and Annie? They already knew about (laughs) like Paul is just out of the loop here.
0: (laughs) I don't know, Andrew. I mean, he met a guy who clearly knew a lot about a lot who likes to, uh, possibly have sex with women if he's in a pinch and, uh, was the Casper would watch him. Like, Casper's into so many sexual kinks, I don't understand how he was able to find any free time to make business propositions with Vince Vaughn. And where the fuck does he get all his money if he's just watching people fuck or fucking himself all the goddamn time? He's a
1: corrupt politician. He takes the money wherever he wants.
0: Yeah, but, like, I'm pretty sure you have to get involved in politics, apart from the whole, you know fucking thing No
1: Charlie you you don't get it see he's going to these parties with the film director and it's all part of his job as city manager he's networking <laughs>
0: He has all of his uh, sex party uh, information on LinkedIn. Yeah, yes, he, <laughs> with a re- with a resume and everything.
1: Look, yeah. <laughs> why why commit to either business or pleasure when you can have both?
0: <laughs> Clearly, I'm living my life wrong, Andrew. <laughs> but yeah, like just just the way that I don't know. It just this episode felt so disjointed. Maybe because we're still adding new layers to a ton of information we already know about. To the point where I don't really feel like, because by season, season one, episode three, I felt like I was settled into, okay, this is what the show is about, these are who the characters are, these are developments that are going here and here, here's where the murder investigation's going, I can follow it here... And with this season, I feel like, well, here's information for this character and information for that character and information for that character. And then something happens next episode. Okay, here's even more information on top of the other information that intertwines with this information. And it's just so much exposition for characters we don't know about or have not met yet.
1: I'm telling I'm telling you, Charlie, that's the nature of the beast. Okay, we said it before. Season one was all about fairly simple character dynamics and a fairly simple plot that they spiced up and made seem deeper by using a bunch of time jumps and flashy cinematography and pseudo philosophical supernatural stuff and in this season it seems like Pizzolatto is mainly just going for scope like he's saying this is a wide reaching complex conspiracy with a lot of moving parts, and so that's where a lot of the focus of the story has to be. But uh, do you want to talk at all about Ray's ex? I mean, she offered to pay him for sole custody...
0: Just so he wouldn't fight it. So there's not much to say about that. Uh, Give Abigail Spencer more. uh, You know, same complaint I have with Kelly Riley. Uh, So much information about characters we don't know. Give the female characters, apart from Rachel McAdams, who we are spending time with, better material to work with. Apart from being nags to our male protagonists. Because Abigail Spencer is basically showing up and nagging Ray to do things he doesn't want to do. And, yeah, that's a really harsh, cold thing to be like, here's $10,000, give me custody of my son. But, you know, we don't really know anything about her. And then Kelly Riley's just nagging about the blow uh, Like, these are such good actors, this Andrew. Give them better, more fleshed out characters and not just show up for one scene to be contrivances. Don't you feel like some of these supporting female characters are still being underwritten? Well sure. I feel like a lot of the characters are underwritten. But again, that's just big be- that's just that's just because
1: again, the plot is so far reaching and wider this season. I'm telling you, Charlie, it's a it's a nature of the beast, okay? Don't hate the player, hate the game. It's the it's the
0: nature of this subgenre. And you know what's interesting too is that you brought up how the first season went back and forth in time, and yet this season is so much more linear, and I'm having such a more difficult time following it. Right again, because it, it, they,
1: he's just taking the complexity in a new direction. The subgenre, by its nature, requires there to be this big, far-reaching conspiracy with a lot of moving parts that it's it's hard to follow. It's possible that some of this could could be executed better, but I still think you would have a lot of that just because of the genre that they've chosen to play in this season.
0: I guess so, but really, like, okay, Vince Vaughn ripped out the guy's grill. Ray's not really dead, we learn about Sasha, and Taylor Kitch is gay, which we already figured out last episode. What happened this episode?
1: Well, the other thing we haven't really talked about, Ray went to visit his racist, alcoholic
0: father. Yeah, with uh, Chekhov's badge on top of that. Right. <laughs> That was an interesting scene. was it, though? I mean, like, I've seen so many uh, racist father caricature is also something that's just boring me at this point, and I know that's such a cop-out to just be like, it's boring, it's not interesting, I'm not captivated. But at the same time, it felt like so many other... Did it really surprise you that based on Ray's relationship with his son uh, that he had a racist, abusive father?
1: No, but one of the main themes of this season is that whole idea of the relationship between parents and their children and how one generation is affected by the previous generation and how trauma and violence can be passed down um, across generations. And so I think it was kind of important that we got that scene with Ray and his dad just to kind of see where he comes from, how that's affected him. He's an alcoholic. His dad seems to be an alcoholic. Uh, We don't know if his dad was also corrupt, but we do know that his dad was also a police officer. So clearly, Ray seems to be struggling with the fact that in many ways, he's just like his father.
0: You know what was one interesting touch that showed that he was corrupt is remember how the defense for the O.J. Simpson trial or the prosecution for the O.J. Simpson trial was corrupt. He did have one line that was like, after the O.J. trial, I couldn't do it anymore. And I was like, oh, was he on O.J.'s prosecution? (laughs) Like, was he on for that evidence? (laughs) Oh, that's why he's a racist. Okay, Like, I did think that one line was kind of like, oh, that's a nice little touch like he must have been one of the guys who presented that the glove or something like i don't know that was one interesting thing
1: i mean i again i just think i just think it's designed to show you that ray as a character is who he is because of what came before and he's desperately trying to claw his way out his life is in shambles both because of who he is naturally, and, and his background and everything with his father. And so he's fighting an uphill battle, basically, just trying to
0: change and trying to be a decent human being. And I get that. I do. It's just, I find these characters to be so much more flat than the ones that Harrelson and McConaughey portrayed in the first season. And I know it's not fair to compare. I feel like I've said that so many times this episode alone, that it's not fair to do this and it's not fair to do that. And I know it's not technically good criticism for me to say I was bored or I wasn't interested, but it just comes off as very run-of-the-mill noir tropes, run-of-the-mill gangster tropes, run-of-the-mill... Yes, and I again, and Charlie,
1: I'm going to say it, chinatown la confidential the characters are kind of flat i can totally see where you're coming from charlie i do think this was a weaker episode overall compared to last week Mm -hmm. i just think that again some of these issues come with the territory that pizzolato has chosen to to explore here and um the conclusion we seem to be dancing around but not directly stating, is that maybe is the problem.
0: I feel like he is, and I hate to be that... I hate to sound like a jerk and call him out on it, but the writing last season was not my favorite aspect of it. I mean, what about you, Andrew? Was it more so the writing, or was it kind of everything else?
1: Well, I think last season... The writing was fairly solid, but Fukunaga's direction and the editing in particular helped elevate a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And this season, I think that he's chosen a different subgenre and you can tell that in many ways he's trying to directly respond to some of his critics and he's got these little jabs at Fukunaga. It feels like there's not quite as many people there that have the ability to kind of rein him in. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that maybe with someone like Pizzolato, you need another creative force or another visionary kind of working alongside him to help make his works and his style work the best they can.
0: Yeah, I know what you, and a lot of people, as I've stated before too, a lot of people have been comparing this season to much more like a Michael Mann film than last season. And, but the thing about Michael Mann is Michael Mann may not be the best when it comes to dialogue, but he, he's able to, uh, orchestrate shots and create compositions that just are absolutely stunning. Images that take your breath away, shootouts that make you feel like you're right in the middle of the action. He was one of the first directors to use digital uh, cinematography in a mainstream film with Collateral in 2004. Uh, Digital wasn't really a big thing back then, and he has managed to make digital cinematography look absolutely gorgeous. And here I feel like it's almost like the script is Mannion, and directorial-wise and editorial-wise, there's nothing visually there. It sounds like what we're saying is... Michael Mann needs to direct
1: the rest of Season 2 of True Detective.
0: If Michael Mann directed the rest of Season 2, I'm sure I would love it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, let's move on to listener feedback.
1: As always, you can email the show at detectthis at filmgeekradio.com or leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We have a couple emails to go over today. Uh, We got an email from Mark who had an interesting question for us. Mark writes... Do you think it's Mayor Austin Chisani's son who is involved? Could he be linked to Rick Springfield's character?
0: I feel like the mayor's son is almost too much of Red Herring. Like, he's so disgusting and misogynistic and despicable that I feel... If he was involved somehow, he would definitely be playing second fiddle to whatever the big bad is. But I wouldn't doubt his involvement. I just do not think that he's the head of this whole crime scheme here. But it, it is a good point. I appreciate the question.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure he's linked to Rick Springfield's character. Unless no, I don't it, either. I mean, it, it could be an indirect connection like these strange sex party things that are going on could somehow be linked to Annie's father and his organization which is also linked to Rick Springfield because they know each other I, but i don't think it's going to be a super direct connection
0: i don't den- I, I don't deny the fact that he'll probably come back considering how prominent of a character the mayor is so far in this story and that he's clearly rooted deep in whatever involvements Vince Vaughn has with the railway proposition. But he's almost too bad for me to say, yeah, he's the one behind everything.
1: And speaking of Frank, uh, we got an email from Zach all about Frank and Frank's wife. And I think that you'll find this interesting, Charlie. Zach writes... The main thing I think people are missing so far is that something is clearly going on with Frank's wife, Jordan. Vince Vaughn has gotten some flack for his performance. A lot of people are saying he seems flat, bland, asleep, and unconvincing. But Vaughn's performance here makes perfect sense, as does his somewhat sleepy delivery, when you realize that's exactly what it's supposed to look like. He is asleep. Not literally, (laughs) but in the sense that that means... He's not seeing what's going on around him. His world is fragile and illusory. He's confused. He can't see the forces working against him. He's affecting roles that he's not comfortable in. He's pursuing goals for the sake of children he can't actually conceive and that his wife may not even want, and his partners are all looking to take him out or steal from him. I went back to the first episode, and the very first thing Jordan says to Frank is, Did you go to sleep? And then at the beginning of the second episode, we find that he's deeply terrified that he's asleep. That's what they call a hint. Even better, the very first thing Jordan says to him in that bedroom scene is, Stop thinking. I'm amazed so few people are paying attention to this.
0: Yeah, I I have to admit, I wasn't one who caught on to this either, and I... Greatly, greatly appreciate the fact that you're drawing attention to this. It's a good point. I feel like he is kind of playing a character who is so exhausted at trying to come clean. And I hope Kelly Riley is... That would be awesome if she's somehow behind more things that Vince Vaughn is not aware of that he's not paying attention to. Because... The the one thing that I will say is that it did seem like she was a bit of more of a seductress towards the end of the episode, where she was like, I stayed up for you. She didn't seem like she was getting pushed around like she was at the beginning of this episode. Well, she wants to talk, and
1: that's where the title of the episode comes from, because he responds, maybe tomorrow. Yep. So clearly, she wants to talk, she wants to be open, and the question is, does she want to be close to him so she can manipulate him? And... In this email, Zach theorized, uh, it was kind of a lengthy email, but later on in the email, he theorized that his wife, Jordan, is perhaps the reason they can't conceive. She could be taking some kind of contraception without his knowledge, according to Zach. And this episode kind of hints that maybe that's the case because Frank says he's doing fine when it comes to that. You know, he's
0: got plenty of, uh, mobility. At the same time, three episodes in, don't you think we should know a little bit more about her by now? I'm liking the fact that we're able to draw theories about her, of course, but I wish that it was more than just, oh, she's Frank's wife.
1: Well, I mean, again, maybe they're subtly trying to imply that she's really kind of running things. Uh, Zach points out, quote, he's lying there at the start of the second episode, wondering what's going on around him and where his problems originate. And it's with her, at least partially. That's why the roof is leaking in his house, figuratively speaking, because she is there, eroding it from within. In all this, the closest thing he seems to have to a real friend is Ray, a guy who he has spent years turning into a sock puppet.
0: That is a great point. He's
1: kind of Ray's puppet master, but maybe Jordan is his puppet master.
0: And I hope so. I, yeah, that's a, it's a terrific point. I made similar comments in in our first episode because there was that shot of her looking somewhat sinister when he was making that big speech about the proposition about the railroad or railway. I want more of her. She's billed in the opening credits alongside Colin Farrell, Taylor Kitsch, Rachel McAdams, and Vince Vaughn, and yet we've seen so little of her. It would surprise me as if, if, if she was in little else. But at the same time, at this point, I am kind of disappointed in in Pizzolatto that we still know nothing about her. And sure, that leaves interesting theories that we can make up about this with her being a possible puppet master, but I don't even have a hint as to what the motivation for being the puppet master of Frank would be. You know what I mean? Because she wants money and power.
1: As she says in the opening episode, you know, she says something like uh, being... Rich is better than being the opposite.
0: That is true, but I get it. We all want to be rich and powerful, but have some sort of motivation to, or, or backstory or something. I don't know. It's so much time developing Vince Vaughn and, like, no time developing his wife at all.
1: All right, we also got an email from Floyd, and Floyd had a couple of good points to make this week. Uh, he writes... I wonder if that red-headed, red-bearded henchman of Frank's is really who raped Ray's wife. But Frank killed two birds with one stone in having Ray knock off someone that Frank wanted to get rid of and got Ray in his pocket by making him believe he was giving him the rapist. It's a good point. Yep, that henchman does have red hair. He does have red hair. And he supposedly had phone issues, but who knows what he likes to get out and do on the side. Andrew, who are these people?
0: I don't know anything about them apart from their angst. <laughs> <laughs> they're criminals, and they're lonely. That's all Yeah, they're evil. very lonely, they're very brooding, they drink a lot, and they have problems.
1: Floyd also says, Casper had a weakness for the young ones. The mayor has an odd-acting, possibly traumatized young daughter. Personally, if someone hurt my daughter, I'd probably burn their eyes out and shoot their junk off. The mayor also approved putting Ray on the case, who by his own admission is no Columbo. And then the mayor essentially told him that solving the case wasn't a priority. All right, so it seems like Floyd is on the same page as us, Charlie, in thinking that the person in the bird mask who killed Casper could be trying to get revenge against the mayor and could be as some sort of traumatized victim.
0: I agree. Uh... If you do have a line coming from a character like that who is in high power of a town in Los Angeles, of all places, saying solving the case isn't the main priority, you do have to raise an eyebrow. Like, what do you mean? Isn't that? Isn't that my job to solve the case? Like, like I'm amazed that Ray didn't take it as jarringly as I did. Well, I think because Ray knows they're all corrupt. <laughs> yeah, Ray knows they're dirty
1: and, he, and he, uh, he, yeah. <laughs> he basically told Annie he was like, hey, they don't want us to solve this they shouldn't have put us together if they really wanted to solve this thing he knows that they picked him because they know he's corrupt and, and he, they think that you know he won't make trouble for them the only question is
0: is Ray going to continue to go along with their cover up? I mean, considering the fact that he has been shot with rubber bullets and could be dead by now, I'm pretty sure he's gonna wanna try and find out who the hell shot him and why. Yeah, I'm why. Kind of
1: thinking all bets are off now. I'm thinking Ray is basically gonna. Decide, it's personal. It's, yeah, it's personal it's, it's at personal. this point. I think he, I think he's gonna decide. You know what? My life is in shambles. Screw it. I'm gonna solve this thing, and I don't care what the consequences are.
0: He went from drinking. Bottle after bottle of Jim Beam to merely drinking water this week, Andrew. He's a changed man.
1: He wants to stay angry, Charlie. Yeah. He's gone from being really depressed to just being, quote, apoplectic.
0: Ah, uh, and it all comes back around. <laughs> yeah, <yep. laughs>
1: I think that'll wrap it up for this episode. We would love to get your feedback on the show. Don't forget, you can give us a call at 336-793-2509. You can also email us at at detectthisatfilmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you liked this episode, please write us a review. That would really help us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. Just go to filmgeekradio.com and click the support tab, and you'll find the donate button. We also have an affiliates page. You can visit some of our partners, including Amazon. And if you navigate to any of our affiliates using our website, then we will get a small percentage of whatever you purchase. So uh, that would really help us out a lot. Charlie, where can people find you online?
0: You can follow me on Twitter at ctnash91, that's C-T-N-A-S-H-91. I'm also a member of the Boston Online Film Critic Association, which you can find at bofka.com, that's b-o-f-c-a.com. And uh, you can find work that I've written for Movie Mezzanine, Edge on the Net, Cinematic Essential, and All Things Horror at those websites as well. And you can follow me on Letterboxd at uh, Charlie Nash. You can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxed at Writer Andrew. And if you do follow me, be sure to send me a
1: message. So I'll know you're a listener, and I will call you back. That'll wrap it for this episode. I'm Andrew Johnson.
0: I'm Charlie Nash. And suck your own dick.